This is I Was There, gigs that change the world. Sometimes history happens and you don't know that you're witnessing it, and sometimes history happens and you do know you're witnessing it. And I think virtually anything that happened with Nirvana, people were aware it was going to be somewhat historic. And this had all the ingredients of it. You just knew that this was going to be one for the books. I tried to drink it in as much as I possibly could, just like I tried to drink in, you know, all my time with the band, you know, personally and, and musically. You just knew, you know, sometimes you just know this is history. Episode 8 Nirvana at Reading Festival, 30th of August, 1992. My name is Danny Goldberg. I was one of the managers of Nirvana, and I also am the author of the book, Serving the Servant, Remembering Kurt Cobain. I had a management company in Los Angeles. We'd had some uh, success with Bonnie Raitt, who just won a Grammy, and the Allman Brothers Band, but I wanted younger artists. I hired a young guy named John Silva, who was tuned into what was then the kind of new 90s version of American punk, because it was clear that that was kind of a growing artistic and commercial category. We then were able to sign Sonic Youth just before their album Goo came out. And then Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth told me about Nirvana, and I trusted Thurston completely. He had the ultimate taste in that generation of music. So he told me they were the best band he'd seen and that they were looking for a manager. So whatever he said, I believed. And apparently they believed him too because we had one meeting with the three of them, Kurt, Kristen, and Dave. And until the day uh, Kurt uh, killed himself, I remained involved, particularly relative to him in, in terms of the management of Nirvana. My name is Michael Azared, and I covered Nirvana's Reading performance in 1992 for Rolling Stone. I'd been a music journalist since 1985 with a kind of specialty in underground indie alternative kind of music. And being in that sort of world, one came across uh, Sub Pop Records. And coming across Sub Pop Records, you came across Bleach. And I heard that, and it was interesting. Like, these guys are playing kind of heavy rock, but the riffs are kind of catchy, and the guy has a great voice. And that's about as far as it went. So the first few months, I just looked at them as sort of this promising young artist that I didn't pay that much attention to, even though I knew there was a buzz about them. And, you know, they rehearsed for many, many months before they recorded Nevermind. And then I realized I should see them live because if they were going to put out a record and I'm one of the managers, it was weird. I'd never seen them. So I saw them opening to Dinosaur Jr. at a small theater called The Palace in Hollywood. Kurt wanted that gig just to kind of work out some of the material in front of a live audience before they actually recorded Nevermind. And seeing them on stage was an epiphany for me. I just couldn't believe the intimacy he created with an audience. And there was some magic that I just couldn't exactly put into words. But it was when I saw them live that I realized how lucky I was to have gotten involved with them. And from that day after, I was way more emotionally engaged and generally more engaged because I saw who this guy was. Then I was working at MTV News in uh, the summer of 1991, and a producer there just kept playing this one album over and over in her office obsessively and after a while it really started to catch on with me i just thought this is great i love that song and i love that song and i love that song finally i just opened up the door and i said who is this and she said uh it's nirvana i said 
that sub pop band, that's them, because this was such a, a major breakthrough. And it was just a great record. It's just one of those perfect records. I had no idea it was going to be such a phenomenon. That was the aspirational goal to get to three, four hundred thousand albums. The idea that it would sell 11 million albums on Nevermind was completely unthinkable before Nevermind actually was released. And I was also writing a lot for Rolling Stone as a freelancer. And at some point, they assigned me to write a cover story about Nirvana. And that turned out to be the story with the famous cover where Kurt is wearing a t-shirt that says corporate magazines still suck. I just made a connection with Kurt, I understood him. And the article came out and made a little bit of a splash. And I was kind of associated with Nirvana a little bit at, at Rolling Stone. So when that concert came up, they sent me to Reading to cover it. And uh, that's where I found myself in uh, August of 92. They had an early slot on Reading of 91. Again, Smells Like Teen Spirit hadn't been released yet. It was just about to come out. So now a year has passed. Nevermind has come out, and it's the biggest rock album of the year. It's gone to number one in many countries. And Kurt Cobain is just this phenomenon. And Europe was very, very important to Nirvana. The UK was very important. And Reading was the best festival you could get. And it was a no-brainer to accept the Reading offer when it came in. Nirvana was certainly, you know, the hottest, most zeitgeist-defining band of that time. And there was all kinds of mystery about this appearance they hadn't played in a while. Kurt Cobain was rumored to be in the throes of heroin addiction, and the band is on the verge of breaking up because of it. And there's all this drama, and the music press in particular in the United Kingdom was playing up this controversy and mystery. Just a couple of weeks before Reading, Frances Bean Cobain was born, the daughter of Kurt and Courtney Love. And within weeks of Frances's birth, it was a huge outcry. There was questions even about their custody in the state of California that took months to resolve. And the rumors were rampant that Nirvana was not going to actually show up and do Reading. The band had not been getting along particularly well in the months leading up to it. It had reached such a point where no one was really sure if Nirvana was even going to appear. So there was this combination of the anticipation of this gigantic, important band and the possibility that they wouldn't even play at all. Yeah, Anton Brooks, who did publicity for the band in the UK, said that every journalist was convinced that they weren't playing and thought he was lying when he said that they were indeed going to do it. I think there was a certain degree of, of anxiety, but it was more kind of an embattled determination to prove the skeptics wrong. I do remember reading that Dave Grohl was quite nervous about it because the band was very rusty. They just hadn't played in a while. And here they were playing, you know, by far the biggest show of their career with almost no rehearsal. So, you know, there was trepidation about the show internally, you know, within the band, and there was mystery and controversy about the show amongst the public and the press. 
Personally, I don't think it was ever in question. I think Kurt had made up his mind. You know, he knew he was Kurt Cobain as an artist. He knew what he could do on stage, and he loved that vocation for all of his angst. He had tremendous confidence in his artistic ability for good reason. It meant a great deal to him, and it was a moment for him to really show that his creativity and energy were undiminished. And he obviously rose to the occasion and had great clarity when he hit that stage. I don't think there was any ambiguity in his mind about what he was going to do. I'm Anthony Hodgkinson, Tony and Interpretive Dancer. One of my best friends, Russell Warby, set up an agency that bought bands into the UK at the time in the late 80s. Sub-pop bands, Amphetamine Reptile, Shimmy Disc. And I used to do a bit of driving for him. Used to pick bands up from the airport, shuttling around, and that's basically how I met Nirvana. It was just part of the, you know, shuttling the band around. I don't think I was starstruck really at the time. I have been starstruck in the past, but it wasn't then really. It sort of started when Dave joined the band, and Kurt had an idea of somebody sweeping the stage between songs or while songs were going on, and it sort of evolved from that and it became a dare for me to dance in ladies clothes at a show and I just yeah why not and I got a call asking me to do it or I wanted to do it so I was the dancer from Ready 92 for Nirvana it didn't seem that big a deal at the time we're all hanging out very uh, jovial and that I think they you know they may have been a bit nervous, you know, because I don't think they'd rehearsed for quite a while before that show. We were all very excitable, yeah. When I wrote my book, I tried to call a lot of different people that were there. I spoke to Mike Lazarat, obviously. I spoke to Everett True, who was the one who actually wheeled Kurt out onto the stage in a wheelchair. And as far as I could tell, it's something Kurt thought of almost at the last minute. With the support of his friends and family, He's going to make it. So he decided, I'm going to be pushed out in a wheelchair uh, and wear a hospital gown and walk up on the stage. And then I'm going to sing the first line of The Rose by Bette Midler <laughs> and then fall to the ground as if I had collapsed. And that's what he did. Some say love It is a real Kurt certainly did want to lampoon this idea that he was a, a heroin-addled basket case. And that's the sort of thing that he did to make light of things that could be held against him. He would kind of exaggerate them. Well, I think that was probably a kickback from all the tabloid nonsense. I, don't, I think that was something that Kurt came up with with Everett True, I think. And it was a stroke of just sheer brilliance. I mean, it's one of the most amazing things theatrically in rock history, in my mind, and certainly in the brief but glorious history of Nirvana. The first 60 seconds are so moving to me. Just that howl of his voice, the power of it, the realization instantly at the audience, oh my God, he's here, and this energy is here. It's still my favorite moment of it, that first 60 seconds of music. I saw Nirvana a couple dozen times, I guess. I don't know, something like that. And that was one of the greatest Nirvana shows I've ever seen. And it was one of the greatest rock shows I've ever seen. They just played 
with incredible power. They rose to this occasion. The band was just so good. They were a very tight band. There was nothing ever sloppy about a Nirvana performance that I was aware of. It was one of the biggest shows they'd ever played. People were not sure of what was going to happen. And they came back and they played a really massive, very passionate, ingenious, <laughs> a very moving show. You know, when I watch it, I mean, his level of intensity and transparent emotion conveying what he was feeling personally and linking it to the audience's desires for meaning and the, the angst of the audience. It's just an incredible, beautiful performance. I just love it. They were on fire from my you know, point of view for the entire show. You know, I think they opened with Breed and there was School, Sliver, Drain You, In Bloom. I mean, these are, you know, Come As You Are, Lithium. These are all, you know, hits. You would hear a great song and say, that was amazing. And then they play another song and that was amazing. And they just kept banging them out. It was just one after another. It just never stopped. They had had enough time playing together that even with only one rehearsal for that gig, they had still spent the entire last year playing those songs. That Chris and Dave rhythm section had this heaving groove. It was just really oceanic. I love the interchange between him and Chris on stage to me was very special because I really believe it was kind of spontaneous. There was a sophistication about, you know, how they did the songs and the covers that they did and, and the riffs that's in addition to being emotionally so meaningful, it's just artistically great. They were a great band and this was one of their peaks. The songs were incredible, and Kurt was in great voice. And the other half of that, you know, in classic rock concert fashion, was the audience. Oh yeah, it was, oh, electrifying, the audience. Yeah, it was, it made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. I watched the whole show from behind the band, I guess on Chris's side. From that vantage point, you could see the entire audience, and it was the proverbial sea of humanity. It was just, thousands and thousands and thousands of people packed together going off into the distance. It was really an incredible sight. I think it was about 50,000 or something. I guess it was a little bit nerve-wracking, but you know, you can only see the first few people in the first few rows of the audience, really. So, you know, it's, uh, that shields you a little bit from it. When you've performed in front of audiences before, it doesn't seem that big a deal, I don't think. You just have to get on with it. There was no room to dance or anything like that, so people pogoed all the way to the back. And they would pogo up and down in these big groups and would kind of be like a, you know, a wave that would go from the front to the back continuously. And it kind of meshed with this oceanic, heaving groove that the, the band had. And after a while, all these pogoing bodies started emitting heat and sweat and steam. It would come up in these great billowing clouds of condensation, and it looked like a big human forest fire. It was just a staggering sight. I've never seen this before or since. The audience reacted rapturously, and they sang along to the choruses, and they danced, 
and they cheered, and there was a lot of love in the air. It was a very, very moving evening. This song is dedicated to my 12-day-old daughter and my wife. Oh, it's so moving to me. You know, again, I remember so vividly how stressed out he was and his uh, asking everyone to say, I love you to Courtney so she could hear it, you know, on a telephone and, uh, and a recording. This is being recorded, so why don't you give her a message and say, Courtney, we love you. Thanks. This kind of mass cathartic exorcism it was a really, really stunning show. I don't know if anybody remembers Tony, but he danced for us last time we played here last year. And he's, he's a great guy, and he still writes all the songs. Nirvana had an onstage dancer, and that was a really, really fun thing and very memorable. This guy kind of did what everyone in the crowd wanted to be doing and might have been doing, you know, in their living room. <laughs> Basically, just to have fun, be weird, to not be hit on the head again by Chris's bass, not to hit Kurt in the face while I'm flailing around, and be accessible as well. I don't want to uh, come on too professional because then, you know, it doesn't become accessible and you can't relate with the crowd and they added a sense of celebration, and I think they fed that idea of humor combined with angst and intensity. There was always this element of humor behind Kurt's eyes, I felt. And he was a great dancer. He was really loose and funny and spontaneous. And that was a really fun addition to the show. I think it maybe took a little bit of the edge off of the show, which was kind of welcome. I was absolutely knackered, and I gave myself whiplash as well. Just thrashing around too much and getting overexcited, and uh, having a couple of drinks while I was dancing, which is never a good idea because you can't pace yourself and you just get too overexcited and overdo it. And then they came back for a killer encore with some fun covers and then an epic equipment smashing orgy. That was an epic show. Yeah, it was instantly clear that it had been a triumph. These guys had done a lot of shows. They knew it was a triumph. They knew it was a good show and they felt it right away, it was really kind of a rebirth of the positive spirit between the three of them, you know, and they kind of took that into the next several weeks of what they were doing. The thing that I remember after they finished playing was the stunning silence. It was just, you know, the proverbial thundering silence. This is all that sound and energy coming out and then it just stopped. Thank you very much. Good night. And it was just a humid August English evening and it was just very quiet and everyone's ears and bodies you know were buzzing still. That's what I really remember is the, the silence. You know, I, I look back at it as one of the most extraordinary things of any artist in rock history to be so embattled, to be so under siege, and to rise to such artistic heights under the glare of the brightest spotlight, you know, it's just an incredible thing. And when I was researching my book and thinking about Kurt's career, Reading of 92 was certainly one of a handful of high points. 
that gig stands out because of the the tension about whether it would even happen, but also because this was a real test of whether Nirvana's music could translate to a really vast crowd. Reading is a classic rock festival. It's where reputations are made, and they rose to the occasion and then some. It was Nirvana's last performance in the UK, and by and large, really, they didn't do that many shows in the UK. So, you know, I guess not that many people saw them really. I knew it was an important gig. I knew that the UK was incredibly important to Nirvana, and that to me, Nirvana had very quickly kind of entered the pantheon of rock history. You know, I was their manager. I had a very romanticized view of them that uh, I think history has validated. But by that time, I certainly looked at them as everything they did is important. And so, against the expectations of a lot of the press and a lot of even some of the fans, the band, in fact. Did show up and did Reading '92, and obviously it's gone down as one of the great performances that they ever did, and and one of the great performances that anyone ever did. It comes down as one of, I guess, history's greatest gigs. I don't know. It's very hard for me to quantify that, really. I have never watched that live at Reading DVD. I just want to remember it the way I remember it. Some people try to reproduce it, you know, or top it. I know that that was one of the greatest rock concerts. I will ever see. It's just nice to have been part of, I guess, rock and roll mythology, and I have a lot of kids direct message me, and you know, it's just inspiring for them, and it's just somebody in the right place at the right time that took on a dare. It was cheeky, and you know, anybody can do whatever that you want, really. It's been wonderful for me, really. But you know, it's the last time I saw Kirk. It's quite a melancholy affair, I'd say. Now, anybody that loved Kirk can get very sad when they think about his death. I mean, there's just no getting around it. So there's certainly a lot to be melancholy or sad about when you think about Kurt, regardless of what particular event it was. But I think one can honor those feelings and still recognize the sheer brilliance and beauty of the art. You know, that's my go-to favorite rock concert of all time. That's my memory of it, and I'm sticking to it. the last paragraph of Come As You Are, the story of Nirvana, the book I wrote about Nirvana that came out in 1993. This is a little scene of something I saw after Nirvana played. Still wearing the full-length doctor's smock he'd worn during the show, Kurt walked off stage hand in hand with a little boy who it turned out had terminal cancer and had wangled his way backstage. Kurt slowly descended the stairs from the stage as a lone Klieg light beamed down on him. All in white, his blonde hair gleaming, he looked just like an angel, the boy, a cherub. This would be sent to tell my friends at school. All right. I'll sit here. Oh. Oh, thanks, mate. There was a horde of people all around Kurt, but somehow the light never hit them. No one made a sound. It was very quiet especially after the thunderous noise of the show. The crowd followed him down an alleyway made by the backstage tents, and then he turned a corner, still hand in hand with a little boy, and was gone.
Thanks to Danny Goldberg, Kurt Cobain's manager, Michael Azarad, Rolling Stone writer, Nirvana biographer and attendee of the band's 1992 Reading performance, as well as Anthony Hodgkinson, Nirvana's onstage dancer. Don't forget to rate and subscribe if you enjoyed the podcast and make sure to share I Was There With Friends. I'm Sophie Kay and this was an Absolute Radio production. Next time on I Was There... Gigs That Changed the World. One of the most ambitious theatrical albums brought to life on stage for an equally ambitious and theatrical tour. Because they were so dramatic and the seriousness of the music, it seemed to just resonate with people. You saw when their shows and you would come back moved. It's not just entertaining, but, you know, seriously moving. If you were in the audience seeing that, it was like a god had arrived from the heavens and was playing that guitar. It was just amazing. The show was just astonishing, spellbinding. It really was Hollywood blockbuster level. It's Pink Floyd's The Wall Tour.